Senate majority will pass legislation. I will fight like hell for you every single day, like I've always done and always will. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark, remote in quarantine this week. We have been telling you about this month's primary elections for quite some time, and now they are finally here. Registered Democrats and Republicans will have the chance this coming Tuesday, June 28th, to pick their party's nominees for governor and lieutenant governor. Candidates for assembly, state judgeships, and party positions may also be on your ballot. And it's been a really long campaign leading up to this moment. A year ago, Andrew Cuomo was seeking a fourth term in office. At the same time, Republicans were already laying the groundwork on how to challenge him. But that all changed when Cuomo was accused of sexual misconduct and resigned from office last August. That set off a scramble among Democrats in particular to build a strong ticket for this year's race for governor. And it's turned into the most competitive primary we've seen in New York in more than a decade on both sides. And that's really important because Republicans think this is the best shot they have at winning the race for governor in 20 years. A quick preview of the big day. A crowded field in this year's primaries for governor and lieutenant governor. Up first, the race for governor. There are three Democrats running for their party's nomination. Those are Governor Kathy Hochul, Congressman Tom Suozzi, and New York City public advocate Jamani Williams. Hochul has support from party leaders and is selling New Yorkers her experience in office. She was LG for seven years before she was governor, served in Congress for a term, and was county clerk in Erie County. I have been a public official for 30 years. I have always acted and voted in the best interest of the people in my district. Swazi, a moderate, has been in Congress since 2017. He was previously the county executive in Nassau and mayor of his hometown. He's focused his campaign on the state's rise in crime, saying Hochul hasn't done enough to address that problem. People are not safer. Under this administration, they are not safer. They don't feel safe. And the governor has not made crime a priority. Williams, a progressive, has been the New York City public advocate since 2019 and served on the New York City Council. His campaign has been about redirecting state spending toward resources for disadvantaged communities. What I want New Yorkers to pay attention to, this is what's happening when the state is flush with money and these decisions to harm New Yorkers are bad. In the Republican primary for governor, there are four candidates. Those are Congressman Lee Zeldin, businessman Harry Wilson, former Westchester County Executive Rob Astorino, and Andrew Giuliani. Zeldin, who has support from top party officials, has also made crime a key focus of his campaign, calling for criminal justice changes at the state level. People are losing their lives, their livelihoods. They don't feel safe on their streets. This isn't a red issue. This isn't a purple issue or a blue issue. Andrew Giuliani is the son of former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani and worked in the White House under President Donald Trump. And a big part of his campaign has been opposition to COVID mandates, like the vaccine rule for healthcare workers. On day one, I will end these unconstitutional COVID mandates and give everybody their job back who has lost them with back pay. It's round two for Rob Astorino, 
after he was the Republican nominee against Andrew Cuomo in 2014. He was Westchester County executive for two terms and held the line on spending and property taxes. He says he could do the same at the state level. I will be a force of nature uh, to force the changes that we need in New York because we're, we're on the wrong track, and I think most people know that. Wilson was a latecomer to the race, jumping in just four months ago. He ran for state controller in 2010 and almost won. His campaign has been about reviving the state's economy through tax and regulatory relief for New Yorkers. I think we have the most failed institution in America in New York state government. And I think that turnaround skill set that we need to fix the state is what will benefit all 20 million New Yorkers. There is no Republican primary for lieutenant governor, but three Democrats are competing for their party's nomination in that race. Those are newly appointed LG Antonio Delgado, progressive advocate Ana Maria Archila, and former New York City Council member Diana Reyna. Delgado just joined the race last month after serving in Congress for three years. He sees the role of LG as a partnership with the governor and says he wants to play an active role in the administration. Being able to leverage my expertise and experience utilizing federal dollars and getting those to the state and to local levels and figuring out how to maximize the value points for each of those projects is going to be a real focus of mine. Ana Maria Archila has spent decades advocating for progressive causes like stronger tenant protections and immigrants' rights. And she says she would speak up if she disagreed with the governor and set her own agenda for the office of LG. The lieutenant governor should not be standing quietly in the background. The lieutenant governor should be fighting for you each and every single day. That's what I have done for 20 years. That's what I will continue to do. Diana Reyna served on the New York City Council for 12 years and was a deputy borough president in Brooklyn under Eric Adams. And she says her approach to governing would be to hear from all sides of an issue and then act. Uh, leave the politics at the door. Check in uh, what is your leftist and right uh, partisan um, ideals. Polls open at 6 a.m. on Tuesday and will close at 9 p.m. And if you've been watching the past few months, we've been working our way down the ballot, bringing you interviews with candidates for governor and lieutenant governor ahead of Tuesday's primary. This week, we speak with our final candidate, New York City public advocate, Jumani Williams. He's one of two Democrats challenging Governor Kathy Hochul for the party's nomination in this year's race for governor. We spoke this week for a final look at his campaign and more on his vision for the state. Jumani, thank you so much for coming back. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Anytime. So we haven't talked in a few months. Can you tell me what you're hearing from voters on the campaign trail in these final days? I'm curious to see what they're telling you as you're out and about. You know, we've been crisscrossing uh, across the state uh, from Brooklyn to Buffalo. Uh, you know, there are always uh, unique ecosystems and cultures of how uh, people live uh, that have to be honored and respected. But I got to tell you, the buckets of our campaign uh, generally cross all across the state the same. Public safety, housing, and the economy are all things people are worried about. And uh, we've been presenting our plan and vision of how to truly address it. So let's talk about public safety first. You've mentioned it a few times at the debates for governor, but I want to expand on it a little bit. So you have a plan to tackle gun violence in New York State. You want to invest $1 billion in the state budget to do that. Can you walk us through what that money would be used for and your plan for doing that? You know, we are, I, I'm so proud of the work I, I did in 2012 to 2018, 2019, pre-pandemic, 
where we said we can actually lower this gun violence if we invest in programs and communities in a way that haven't been invested before. And it worked. We saw one of the biggest declines we'd ever seen. We were the safest we'd ever been. Now, data means nothing to you if you're a victim of crime, but we do want to look at what we're doing and see if it's working. Uh, unfortunately, the pandemic hit, and things have only gotten worse. What frustrated me the most was uh, those packages of legislation that people see the commercials now, they're great. Actually, I would have signed it, but they don't address the street violence that people are most concerned about. Um, just uh, recently, there was a mass shooting of a different type in Harlem where nine people were shot. Uh, the $1 billion investment will mimic and expand on the work that we did here in New York City that really addressed those problems. And it was uh, working with community groups that do violence intervention before it happens. We know our law enforcement partners, we have to work with them, and uh, we're glad that they're there to assist, but they can't do it alone. Uh, we, we funded uh, some of youth jobs in a way that they never were funded before. We funded ancillary uh, systems around the wraparound services of legal services, job training, mental health services. So what we did is the same areas that we need to send officers uh, as a response are the same areas we should send other investments. And that's not too hard to conceptualize, but for some reason, it's very hard to get people to understand how impactful it would be in the type of funding that we need. A lot of the time when we have this conversation, I feel like people choose one side or the other in terms of diverting funding to the police or diverting funding to services. Do you think that we can do both? You know, it's incredible. We wasted a, a great opportunity to talk about public safety during the George Floyd protest. So, so many people are focused on the word defund. Yeah. And I would tell everybody, you know, try to find a video of me saying that and you won't. Uh, and it was because I thought maybe it wasn't the best phrasing. At the same time, our jobs were not to tell people in pain how to express their pain and trauma in the streets. Our jobs were to take that pain and trauma and turn it into workable solutions. And we didn't. And that's because people who unfortunately are in leadership are more concerned about running for office. How do I play to my base than actually keeping New Yorkers safe? <laughs> and so the great example I always give is, you know, most law enforcement all across the state, and certainly in New York City, has uh, unabetted access to overtime. Well, why doesn't the Department of Mental Health, the Department of Children's Services, why don't these other agencies have the same access to resources as one agency does? And that's a great way to think about this, because so many of these communities have been starved of resources directly, um, have been starved of agencies really providing them the service they needed for such a long time, that if we just did that, public safety looks a lot different. Instead of these men and women who come in every day, risk their lives, they're taking guns off the street, and we keep asking them, these are law enforcement officers, to do the job of all these other agencies and community groups. And that's not fair to them, and it's certainly not fair to the community. So this goes back to the state budget in some ways, in terms of spending and funding. So the state passed a $220 billion state budget in early April. I know you disagreed with that spending plan, and we don't have to go through all of it, obviously, but can you give me some top lines of what you would have done differently if you were in office this year as part of budget negotiations? I think the best question to ask after any session, after any budget is, are the people who needed the most help better off? And they're not. Uh, and you had a governor that decided that they wanted to stop the budget so we can get a billion dollars to a billionaire to build a stadium that's outside of Buffalo that needed the most help. What we would have done as governor is stop the budget and say, hold on, people are dying in the streets. We have to get a billion dollars for gun violence prevention, youth services, and victim services. There's uh, a few more laws that we can do, but the state laws are not as strong to deal with some of the gun violence that we have, so we have to make investments 
Uh, we didn't get any good cause eviction for tenants. We didn't get any real robust program to stop foreclosures. Uh, we didn't get uh, much. We didn't get. We got zero for housing vouchers, and so we barely touched the surface of how to address the housing pain that people are feeling, how to address public safety, and we decided we're not going to raise any revenue uh, from the people who donate the largest checks. That's a problem, and that means we're moving in the wrong direction. We also haven't seen any investments when it comes to real uh, prevention of the climate change that we're seeing. The only thing we did worse than public safety and housing is actually climate change. There was no money put in for the Climate Protection Act that was passed a few years ago. We can't get a ban uh, moratorium on proof of work crypto mining, which is the worst type of mining. Uh, we have a stall now on congestion pricing. So there's so many spaces uh, where there's actually a through line between who's donating and the bad policies coming out. And that's why we need to make a change to a new direction for New York. Can we expand on housing a little bit? This seems to be the number one issue for a lot of people right now, having a place to live and being able to afford to keep the place that you're living, being able to stay there. If you were governor, what would you do about that? I hear you mentioned housing vouchers and a few other things, but what's your housing plan? How do we keep people in their homes and bring people into homes that may need them? I was an organizer around housing even before I got elected to council uh, 12 years ago. It's an issue I've been working on for a very long time. Uh, and we know people both are suffering uh, tenants and particularly small owners who are facing foreclosure. We didn't get much relief for any of them. The governor's own plan right now, right now, you look it up, it's 100,000 units uh, of uh, prevent, uh, uh, preserved and built affordable, quote unquote, affordable housing. That's not enough for one borough of New York City, much less the entirety of the state. I don't know if people understand that. We have a plan to build and preserve 1 million units of affordability over 10 years. And how we do that, no one pays more than 30% of their income and in rent. So if you make $100,000, you pay 30%. If I make $20,000, I pay 20, uh, 30%. And those prices can help cross-subsidize so the building can operate. And if it can't, that's a good use of taxpayer dollars and subsidies. Not 421A, people may have never heard of it, but it's $2 billion subsidy that primarily is used to subsidize market rate housing. And so what you need is a governor who will say, we're not going to return to normal because it didn't work for you. We're going to normalize your lives, but we're going to go back better than where we were. And the status quo of Albany is how we got here, which is why our campaign is so important at this moment in time. Some of these are policy changes. Some of them are spending priorities. I know that you would like to raise taxes on the ultra wealthy here in New York above where they are already. Uh, there has been some reluctance in the legislature to do that in the past year. What would you do as governor if you were in budget negotiations and you just can't get that yes from the legislature on that? How do you move forward without those higher taxes on the wealthy if the legislature prevents it? Well, I don't know if it was more the legislature or the governor prioritized what she wanted to prioritize. And so last year, in uh, uh, sitting in a room full of wealthy billionaires and millionaires, she said, I don't want to raise any taxes because I want you to come back. I'm not going to raise your taxes. I want you to come back to New York. Well, one, they haven't left. We know one left. He's orange, uh, orange hair. He lives in Mar-a-Lago. I believe he could stay there. Uh, most of the people who have left simply can't afford to live here. What also is deceptive is that we're not going to raise taxes is a Republican line that's used to protect wealthy donors at the expense of people who are trying to find a place to live, who can't find baby formula, who can't find food for their children, who can't afford to pay for food. This is the expense that we have to pay and New Yorkers are suffering right now. And so what we are saying is, this is just stop saying about not raising taxes. We're talking about revenue raises off of people who make 
and this is it. If you make less than a million dollars, and this is after you paid everything you need to pay, if you make less, if you bring home less than a million dollars, we're not speaking to you at all. And primarily, a lot of it has to do with billionaires. People may not even know 120 billionaires in the state made $220 billion, the size of the budget, during this pandemic, while evictions are up, foreclosures are up. The people are benefiting off of the struggles of, of most New Yorkers. We simply can't have it. And so it's about having a conversation of civic responsibility. And we have to have it because even some of the good things that are in the budget, like childcare, they expand over four to seven years. And that means when our money came out, that, that one-time money from the federal government, in the next couple of years, when we lose that money, if we don't raise the revenue, we're going to cut. And by then it'll be too late because the election will be over. You know, you touched on it, but New Yorkers are struggling uh, in some ways more than ever because of inflation, the price of gasoline, especially in upstate New York there. It, you know, you touched on some things that you may do about that, but can you walk me through what you would do if you were governor right now? I know the state has cut the gas tax to some extent, but there isn't a lot of relief out there other than that for people in New York right now. What would you do if you were governor? And if you talk to people who drive uh, and ask them if they felt the impact of that gas tax, they have not. Because, they have uh, not. I sure have not, and I drive. <laughs> hasn't, even, hasn't even changed. Uh, and uh, even if you did, I have to tell you, it wouldn't be as much as you thought it would be. Uh, it is really one of those political ploys that are done close to election time, like some of the homeowner rebates that people may have gotten uh, with uh, the governor's name on it. It's really a ploy at election time to purchase votes. Uh, but it doesn't really impact New Yorkers. And we want to impact New Yorkers. So what we suggested and recommended is that everybody's dealing with something. Drivers, people take mass, tra uh, mass transit, homeowners and tenants, people are struggling, they're paying. Why not get a rebate for all New Yorkers? Give them some money back so they can have it in their pocket. But that is something you do if you actually care about all New Yorkers. If you're focused on who best is going to vote for me and when, what we have is what we get. And unfortunately, you know, sometimes that works, but we're presenting a, a different alternative for that. Uh, we saw people uh, last time um, just vote for someone who was already in the office. It didn't work out too well for us. All right, Jamani Williams, a candidate for governor in the June 28th Democratic primary and the New York City public advocate. Thank you so much. Peace and blessing. Thank you. And we now have a special page on our website where you can watch all of our interviews with the candidates running for governor and lieutenant governor in the Tuesday primary. The only candidates who did not agree to an interview were Governor Kathy Hochul and Lieutenant Governor Antonio Delgado, despite several attempts on our end. But taking a break from politics now, we're at the end of June, and that means Pride Month is almost over. And it was a big month for New York's transgender and gender-expansive community. Before they left Albany, state lawmakers passed a bill that would create a new transgender wellness and equity fund here in New York. That bill is now waiting for a decision from Governor Kathy Hochul. For more on that, I spoke with Elisa Crespo, Executive Director of the new Pride Agenda, an LGBTQ advocacy group. Elisa, thank you so much for being here. Happy Pride. Happy Pride, Dan. Thank you for having me. Of course, anytime. So the state has now created something called a Equity and Wellness Fund for transgender New Yorkers and transgender Americans maybe coming to New York. Can you kind of lay out what this money will be used for? We got $1 million in the state budget. So what will that $1 million go towards? 
So right now it's going towards uh, nonprofits that are either led by trans people or whose mission is to serve trans people or organizations that have programs that are targeted towards the gender expansive community. And it's being used for all sorts of things, for health and human services, capacity building, cultural competency training. Um, it's going to be administered by the Department of Health and eventually will become a RFP process where nonprofits will be able to apply on their own and hopefully receive grants for their programs that target the gender expansive community. Can you talk about some of the unique needs that the trans community faces in New York and beyond? I think in New York, we have a lot of unique issues facing our trans community that are often, I don't wanna say overlooked necessarily, but I feel like people at the state level and at the federal level may not be familiar with it. So I'm interested to hear what you have. Yeah, so I think that we are moving in the right direction. I think more and more people are learning about the disproportionate levels of housing insecurity, um, of homelessness, of incarceration, of you know chronic health conditions. Just to give you a little bit of, of statistics, one in three trans women of color um, experiences living with HIV. Um, almost half of all black trans women in America will experience incarceration in their, at some point in their life. And the average annual income of a trans person of color is about $10,000 a year. So we have these really strong anti-discrimination protections in New York, but what does that mean if we're not actually providing the necessary funding to improve the quality of life of trans people? What does it mean if we're not doing enough to really provide gainful employment and permanent housing um, for trans people? We also saw during the pandemic that trans people suffered the most with respect to food insecurity. So these problems are still alive and well in 2022. Why do you think the trans community faces these unique issues to them? Is it just systemic transphobia? Is it a history of disinvestment? What goes into this that has caused these outcomes? I think it's both of those things. I think it's systemic transphobia. I think it's people's misunderstanding, sometimes even within our own community. And I, and I think there's, you know, we're also seeing um, attacks nationally across the country in, in certain states, states like Texas, Alabama. Um, you know, that resonates with people across the country and they, they then become uh, emboldened and empowered to discriminate openly against trans people. And so it doesn't help that we um, are seeing these things happening in other states across the country. But these things have been going on forever. And I think that, um, you know, people just misunderstand um, the stories and the lived experience of trans people. Yeah, you mentioned these things happening in other states. For New York, we do have really strong anti-discrimination laws, but is there anything else that you think New York should be doing in response to these other states enacting anti-trans laws and, and regulatory action and executive action in some states as well? Well, I know there are some bills out there that would make New York um, a refuge state for trans people who live in other parts of the country where um, they're being targeted, where trans youth are being attacked um, in sports or have banned been banned from receiving uh, gender-affirming care. Um, so that's a step in the right direction. Um, I don't think that bill was passed this most recent session, but I think that's important to send a strong and clear message to the rest of the country that we welcome trans people here, um, that trans people belong here in New York State, 
also we're really excited that New York is the second state in the country to have a statewide transgender and non-binary wellness and equity fund and a million dollars is a great start but as you know Dan it's not enough so we hope that next year during the budget process we can get to that 15 or get as close to it as possible because part of what this fund is supposed to do is invest in new and emerging trans leadership and the reason why that's important is because trans people know how to take care of ourselves we know how to solve our own problems we don't need to be saved and so when you invest in the trans community and the nonprofits that serve us, everyone in our community benefits. And we hope that it will lead to uh, higher wages, to uh, gainful employment, and to permanent housing for trans people. So what else is on the agenda for next year when the legislative session starts in January? Obviously, you have the wellness fund. You're, you're pushed to put it up to $15 million. What else is on your agenda to do for LGBTQ New Yorkers in Albany next year? Yeah, so there are a number of things that we were not able to accomplish this year. Um, one of them is to protect LGBTQ seniors who are living in long-term um, facilities. Um, another one is to make New York the first state in the country to decriminalize consensual sex work, which is something that is very associated with the LGBTQ community, particularly trans women of color who engage in survival sex work. Um, and we also are looking to pass a bill called the Gender Identity Respect, Dignity, and Safety Act, which provides protections for transgender people who are incarcerated in the state of New York. Make sure that they get proper commissary items that are aligned with their identity, make sure they're addressed by the proper pronouns, making sure they're housed accordingly. Um, that's another thing that was passed in the state of California that we're trailing behind on, but I think next year will be the year that we get it done. All right, Elisa Crespo from the New Pride Agenda, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it so much. Thank you so much, Dan. So as you heard Elisa say, the Trans Wellness and Equity Fund is set at $1 million right now, but advocates are hoping for more funding next year. But we do have to leave it there. Don't forget that Tuesday is primary day. Until then, thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well.